Palm Sunday gives us the entire narrative of Jesus' sufferings. In it, we start with his last supper with the disciples in the upper room, all the way to the tomb, all the way to Jesus' suffering. On one level, it seems as if this is just another story that unfortunately we hear way too often in the newspaper and on television. It is good being overwhelmed with evil. We live in an evil world. We live in a world of betrayal and of brutal murder, of discard and the carelessness of life, and it is a repeating theme. And yet the Bible declares that the cross, the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is the very centerpiece of Christianity. It's not pushed aside. It's not simply brought out one Sunday a year and then put back in the closet. We proclaim Christ and Him crucified week after week after week. What happens at the cross of Jesus Christ changes everything. And I would suggest to you that it is much more than a normal human drama of good being overcome by evil, but rather it is the linchpin of all history. So for a couple of moments, just invite you to come along with me as we think through the narrative that you've just seen dramatically read by all those, and thank you to all those who were willing to be a part of that today. Let me remind you of parts of the narrative, and let me remind you of some of the characters in the story that Jesus interacts with along the way. I'll also try to make a couple of comments about other New Testament writings that, that sort of ex- examine and exemplify and expand on what it is that we're seeing in this narrative. Jesus is accompanied by a group of women, a group of women that began with him in Galilee, have followed his ministry, have financially supported his ministry throughout the course of his earthly life. Uh, It is always the women who are there to the better end. If you visit a dying church, there will be a group of women praying and faithfully serving God. Just like they were at the cross of Jesus. This morning I would suggest to you that we are all like those women in that we are witnesses of what is happening in the life of Christ. We are bearing witness to what we see as we watch Jesus walk the way of suffering. The man of sorrows, as Isaiah says, as we watch Jesus suffer for us. The cross of Christ changes everything. First of all, it changes our understanding of love itself. Notice that in the narrative that Jesus says, I have longed to eat this Passover supper with you, disciples, before I enter into my suffering. Jesus knows that he has come to Jerusalem to die. Early on in the narrative, back in chapter 9, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He makes up his mind to go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. I've longed to eat this meal with you before I suffer. He says... In the garden, Lord, if there's a way, Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. When the women cry out for him, 
Jesus, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves because of what is coming down upon you. From the cross, Jesus says, forgive them for they know not what they do. All words of love. Even on the cross as he suffers, nailed in the arms and the legs, suffering suffocation as he tries to pull himself up to grab a breath, beaten, scourged, bloodied, naked. Jesus, in compassion and mercy, speaks to the thieves on the cross and says to the one who asks for mercy, you will be with me in paradise. The New Testament is clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John, the same John that wrote those words in his letter later on says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself to be the propitiation for our sin, the atoning sacrifice. As if we need more, we have an amazing lesson in Isaiah today that Don read. It is the single most convincing prophecy that God's plan was always to send his son to be the man of sorrows, to suffer for the sin of the world. And we are told by Isaiah that this suffering servant was like a lamb led to the slaughter, but who opened not his mouth, verse 7. Why would an innocent man not open his mouth? Why would he willingly suffer? Well, only one reason that I can come up with is love for us. Christ is self-sacrificing himself on the cross. I'm struck by the centurion, this man who was over perhaps a hundred soldiers, which is why he's called a centurion, a century, a hundred. And yet this centurion watching at the foot of the cross, having no other interaction that we know of with Jesus, though he may have been present during his beatings and torture, cries out, this man is innocent. Well, what evidence does he have to base that on? All he can see is the way Jesus dies, and in him he saw no wrong. Just like Pilate, there's no reason to kill this man. And yet he willingly submits out of love. Why would an innocent person go to the cross? Only for love. You see, actions speak louder than a thousand words. So the cross, the cross changes our understanding of love. Secondly, the cross brings us hope in the face of evil and death. If there's anything we need in our day, it's hope in the face of evil. In Jesus' passion, we see him face an amazing array of enemies. 
political powers, corrupt political powers. Two kingdoms, the Jewish kingdom and more importantly, the Roman kingdom. A standing army, abusive guards, an angry mob, a betraying friend, a cursing prisoner on the cross. Jesus is facing all the wickedness and evil the world can muster up and throw at him. I mean, are you just aware? I mean, it's like enough is enough, and yet it continues to come wave upon wave, blow upon blow upon Christ. But there's a telling comment that Jesus makes. Did you catch it when he was talking to the Sanhedrin, the high council of the Jewish authorities? They ask him, they want him to confess that he is the Christ, that he claims to be the Messiah, which is the Greek word for, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Prove that you're the Messiah. Jesus says, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you, you won't tell me. He's known this group for many years. But then he says these words. But from now on, you will see the Son of Man, and he shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What does he mean by that? Well, Colossians 2.15, Paul says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. You see, On the cross, God draws all the evil, demonic forces of this world to one place and he traps them on the cross of Christ. As an innocent son of God, God made man, receives everything that hell can throw at it and dies with it and then rises again. It's a trap. And the enemy falls into it. Former dean of Trinity School for Ministry, one of my former professors, Dr. John Rogers said, despite all the apparent victories of evil, decay, and death, God has the last word. Amen? He is the victory. We proclaim this because of Jesus And we say every week in our services, are you aware that we say it at the end of the service? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. The cross gives us hope over evil and death. Thirdly, the cross offers us justification. In the garden, as Jesus is with his disciples, about to be arrested, he says this obscure quote, the scripture must be fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. But you know that line because you just heard it read by Don a couple of minutes ago. It's from Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was numbered with the transgressors. It's the verse right after he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, but opened not his mouth. 
Why is Jesus led, willing to be included with the transgressors? It's like we said earlier in Jesus' life. Why was he willing to be baptized as if he had sins to repent from? Because he was identifying with us, with you and me, and our need. Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 6, We all like sheep have gone astray, and God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. On Palm Sunday, I love the fact that we start high, we start joyous. We're outside and we're just talking with folks and we're enjoying seeing people we haven't seen in a while. And it's just, it's just lighthearted. We come in here and we're all charismatics, throwing these palm branches around, reminding each other that Jesus triumphantly marched into the city of Jerusalem. But how quickly do those same people that triumph Jesus' name turn to crucify him by their cries? Which is why I love in the narrative that we read, the Passion Narrative... We all are called to say, crucify, crucify him. Why? Because we humans are fickle and we will turn. Just ask the apostle Peter. The writer of Isaiah, Isaiah also goes on to say, there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Some among us will perpetuate or perpetrate horrible crimes and actions, and those are the ones that get all the press. But most of the rest of us passively watch and condone evil. And for that, we are all guilty. Again, just ask Peter. I've been a priest, a pastor for 20 years, right about 20 years now, and because I've tried to walk with integrity, I have gotten to know some really holy people. I'm not talking about myself. Let me tell you, I've met some and lived with and walked with some really holy people. And that privilege has also given them the freedom to be real with me and show me how weak and vulnerable and subject to sin each of them are. Each of the people that you would esteem is highly holy all have clay feet. You see, this is the rub. Don't build a false idea of some righteous good person who has no need to repent, who need, needs not to be identified with the crucifying mob because we have all, we have all betrayed. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God just as, just as, amen, just as Isaiah tells us. So don't fantasize. Don't have a fantasy about some good, righteous person. They don't exist. I've met some of the very best. I've been with them at their confessions. I've been with them at their deathbeds. And they've clung to Christ, knowing the need for a Savior just like we all do. Last week you heard 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 25. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, 
that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be put in right standing with God. We are all Barabbas. We are all convicted and yet Jesus is crucified in our place. We are all like those two thieves on either side of Jesus. It's just a matter of which, which thief we are. Are we the one who curses Jesus from the cross? Or are we the one who cries out for mercy? Which one are you? Today is the day of salvation. The cross transforms our understanding of love. It gives us hope in the face of evil and death. It is our offer of justification of righteousness in Jesus. But it is one more thing as well. The cross also offers us a new purpose for life. Simon of Cyrene, such a minor character in the whole thing, isn't he? You ever thought much about Simon? I mean, talk about bad timing. He is the Alex Farmer of the first century. I mean, he has terrible timing. Here he is, just a pilgrim coming to Jerusalem just to be a part of the festival, and what happens? He gets conscripted into carrying the cross of Jesus. Don't kid yourself. He probably had some of the spit that was cast on Jesus, some of the curses he was taking himself because he was right there next to Jesus. Maybe they were throwing things, probably were. Some of those probably missed Jesus and hit Simon. What a terrible, terrible job. And yet Simon was changed. In John's gospel, we're told that Simon of Cyrene was the father of Rufus and Alexander. Well, how do we know that? Well, because Rufus and Alexander become followers of Jesus after the resurrection. Simon wasn't horrified by his service, but rather was transformed by it. You ever thought about that? He traded in the physically walking after Jesus, carrying Jesus' cross, to spiritually walking after Jesus and carrying his own cross. Charles Simeon, the famous Anglican preacher, 18th century, 1800s, for 50 years preached in the same church. The rich people hated him so much they would lock him out of the pews. And so the poor people that wanted to hear him preach had to stand in the aisles and they wouldn't even give him any light in the church. So they would stand there by candles, standing through the whole service. And Simeon, unlike me, was a long-winded preacher. That was a joke. And he says he hated it because it was a horrible job. Can you imagine going and preaching in a congregation where they hate you so much they lock you out of the pews? And then Charles Simeon noticed Simon of Cyrene. And it changed Simeon. He said, you know, my name is a lot like Simon. And Simon had the privilege of carrying Jesus' cross, of suffering for Jesus, 
as well as having Jesus suffer for him. Paul says in our second lesson, and then I'm almost done, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, have this attitude in you which is also in Christ Jesus. If you are the thief that cried out for mercy and Christ says, today you'll be with me in paradise or when you die, you will be with me in eternity, then guess what? You become like Simon Cyrene and you have a new purpose in life. No longer to build your kingdom, but rather to build the kingdom of God, not by physically building, but by spiritually sacrificing yourself for the needs of others. For the love of others. Even others that would call themselves your enemies. The cross transforms our understanding of love. It gives us hope over evil and death. It gives us a way to be justified before God. And it gives us a new and better purpose in life. Don't run past this week. Pause, take it in. Don't hide the cross. Glory in it. Christ crucified for us. Oh, what a faith. Oh, what a God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.